Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, I hope. Um, if you're new here, we want to welcome you to Lifestone Church. Um, I want to especially welcome you because I'm brand new here. This is my first Sunday here. Uh, technically, it's my first Sunday here. I just, get, I just got to join this incredible team of people here at Lifestone. I'm one of the new pastors here. And my name is Nate Fox, for those of you who haven't met me yet. And I have the honor to share with you uh, this morning because Pastor Ben is recovering from wisdom teeth surgery. And when you do that at 43, it's a killer. Um, so be praying for Pastor Ben as he, he recovers and uh, heals up from that. So uh, some of you may know this, uh, some of you may not, but I was a pastor from 2006 to 2018. I was uh, a part of the leadership team at Centerpoint Church in Orem, Utah. And one of the things that we, we would do every year there is we would have this group of high school students from a big church in California, Southern California, come out and do this VBS with us. Um, they would do a lot of the, the background stuff and a lot of the teaching, and they were a great crew, and they still come out to, to this day or to every year. They come out in the summer, and they do this thing, and it's a huge blessing to the church. Well, um, every year they came out, they would do... Um, a, uh, a trip up the Provo Canyon and go float the Provo. Has anybody ever done that in here? Okay, it's a fun time. It's pretty, uh, pretty easy, pretty safe. And, and we'd get 100 kids up there, go float the Provo. Well, I had float, for the first time I, I floated, is that right? Floated, floated, yeah, floated. I floated the Provo uh, like two weeks before. And when you get there, um, you kind of go to like a base camp, they give you all the equipment, and they bus you up the canyon, and then you get in the water and you float down. It's pretty simple. But on the way up, they do give you safety instructions, okay? So when you're on the bus, there's a person standing at the front of the bus on a loudspeaker telling you exactly what you need to know because there are some instructions that are really important, okay? The Provo's super safe, but... There's two bridges right in the middle of the float, and you got to get out of the water, okay? And what they do is they have this big green truck parked on the left-hand side, and, and when you see that truck, you get out of the water to the right-hand side, you take your tube, you walk around, and you get back in the water after you pass the bridges. And the reason for that is because there's all this debris that has collected over the years, and if you try to go through the bridges in the water, you can get seriously hurt or you can drown. Um, it's happened before, and so they wanna prevent that from happening. Well, when you're on a bus with 100 teenagers and they're being super quiet and polite, no, they're being loud and crazy, so, and, and the loudspeaker doesn't work very well, okay? So the person at the front of the bus sounds like this. And that's what it sounds like. And I, I'm, I'm sitting there going, okay, None of these kids are paying attention. This is, this is, uh, this is not going to be a good thing. I'm at the back of the bus, and I, uh, that means I get in the water last. So all of these kids get in the water. None of them have a clue about the safety instructions, okay? And I, I get in the water last. My son, Josiah, he's here today, sitting over there. He was 17 at the time. He got in the water first, okay? 
And you would think that as a pastor and a leader, that my first thought was the safety of all the students. I hadn't even registered, I hadn't even registered in my mind at all. I didn't think about the fact that they hadn't heard the safety instructions. My only thought was, I've got to catch my son. So I, uh, I get, in the, get in the water, and I just start paddling. Just paddle, 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 paddle. Takes me about 10 minutes. I catch up to Josiah. I tell him how proud of his daddy should be that I was able to catch him. And he's like, whatever. And, and so we start floating down the river. As we're floating down the river, I see the green truck. Josiah and I get out to the right, we get out, and, uh, and we start walking with our tubes down towards the other side where we get in. And then I, it dawned on me, whole, if, the, if I don't tell these people, like if I don't tell these people, then somebody's gonna get hurt. So we get back in the water, and sure enough, 100 kids come floating down the middle of the Provo River headed towards the bridges. And, um, this last group of girls that we ended up direct, we got everybody out, but this last group of girls that came down the river, they were all in their tubes with their knees, like in the tube, floating locked arms, okay? So they had no ability to get out of the water. They were like this giant, like, octo person, you know? And they're floating down, this, down the river to their, 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 you know, their imperilous doom. And, and Josiah and I helped them get out, out of the water. And, and the story's really not about us being heroes at all. It's just, it's just really, but if you think so, that's fine. Um, but it's really about how we can go through life and we can be, be just kind of floating through and not aware of the things that can lead to destruction. We tend to, to kind of float through life. The Bible calls it calls it when we live kind of asleep, when we're not aware of the, um, of the, of the dangers around us. We're not aware of what's going on around us. And, and, and it reminds me of how easy we, we can go about our lives and forget that life isn't always just going to work out. The New Testament describes this thing that's inside of us that actually leads us down the wrong path. It steers us towards the path of destruction. And, and, and the New Testament describes this over and over again, and over again. And it's something called the flesh. It's this thing called the flesh. And this, this word in the original language of the Bible really just means like the human body. But it's describing a spiritual state as well of like this, this thing that's inside of us that that works in tandem with sin, and it's the reality that none of us are perfect, and if we look in the mirror long enough and we're willing to be honest with ourselves, we're going, something is broken, something is wrong inside. And that, 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 that wrong thing that leads us back over and over to things that we would pursue is called the flesh, and it leads us to destruction if we let it. And the flesh always want something more. It's never satisfied. You can't go, oh, I'll just give into the flesh here, and the flesh goes, hey, thanks for giving up. I give up. If you give in, it only wants more. It's kind of like my dog, Rufus. If you met my dog, probably like every other dog, 
he, when we're eating dinner, he comes and he smacks me with his nose on my leg. And then he sits up in this gummy bear pose. Okay? We call it the gummy bear pose. He sits up, makes himself real big. He's a, he's a little shih tzu. I didn't swear there, I promise. But that's what he is. He's a little shih tzu. And he, he sits up there and he, and he begs and he whines until I give him something. And it's annoying. And so when I finally give him something, then Rufus... He's totally satisfied, and he goes and lays down, right? No. He sits there and begs and whines some more. He's never satisfied about, about what I've given him. He's always wanting more, and the flesh is the same way. It's this all-consuming thing that if we give it control in our lives, it will try to grab a hold of how we think and how we act. And when our minds become consumed by fleshly things, we lose clarity. We lose focus. Things that we knew are, that we know are wrong, things that we say, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to go that way. We just kind of end up giving in more and more. And it can be anything. It can be anger. It can be pride. It can be lust. It can be just the pursuit of the endless mores in our life that never seem to be satisfied. The flesh is always trying to control and trying to destroy. Listen to this verse from the book of Romans. Romans 8, 6. It says, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. When our minds become controlled by the flesh, we become more and more selfish we become more and more proud. And that's what creates the blinders. And, and, and essentially, we make everything about us. We become the idol in our own souls. And we don't allow God to have his rightful place at the throne of our heart. God wants to lead. He wants to guide. He wants to protect us. And he wants to be Lord over our lives. And the flesh battles against this idea. And if this becomes epidemic over the course of time, we will become not only destructive to ourselves, but we start to become destructive to, to the relationships around us. People get affected by this. And when this happens, we're unable to produce the fruit of God's spirit. And this verse in Romans here, the mind governed by the flesh is death, is not kidding around. Paul means this. And he means us to really take it seriously. But in this same verse, he also provides us hope. This is not our destiny. This is not what we're made for. This isn't what God created us new for. This is, what, this is not why Jesus came for us to, to live in the folly of our flesh. He came that we would have our minds governed by his spirit and produce life and peace. And so we have this hope. And God wants us to choose him so that he can produce his fruit in us, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I might have missed one, but you get, you get what I'm after, the life that he means for us, full of goodness. So why would I want to talk about this this morning? The reason why I want to talk about this is because we're at the beginning of a new year. 
In fact, we're at the beginning of a new decade. And for a lot of us, we're probably focused on some things that we might want to change about ourselves, whether it's the way we eat, the way we look. Uh, we might want to change. We want to make some goals, some resolutions. We want to spend less, read more, watch less TV. And all of those things are really, really good things to focus on. But what if we get beneath the surface? What if we get beneath the outer things like how I look and how I feel? And, and, and what, if I, what if I think about the things that really, really matter above and beyond that stuff? That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the life that Jesus promises us. And it wouldn't that make sense to start there before we pursue anything else? If we want to make changes, let's change the way God has set us up to change. And so this is the main idea. And if you're taking notes this morning, uh, this is something you might want to write down. So here's the main idea. In 2020, I want to live more from Jesus and make life less about me. It's very simple. I want to live more from Jesus and make life less about me. Now, this idea of living from Jesus is about living from all the things that Jesus is for us, all the things that he has already done for us, and all the truth that he tells us. We're going to live from his grace and his love as the motivation. What we have to remember is that Jesus always makes the first move. We love him in 1 John, it says this, we love him because he first loved us. It's not that we love God, but we love him because he first loved us. He is the great initiator in our relationship with him. And so we need to live from him. Sometimes we, we, we in the flesh mistakenly go and try to live for him in all of our own strength. I'm going to do great things for God. I'm going to stop doing these things, and I'm going to start doing these things. And then we fail, right? Anybody ever made that list before? Yeah, we fail, and we feel terrible, and we're like, God, are you in this? Where is the power? Where is, where is, the, where is the victory? Where's the joy? Because that's what I want. So this morning, let's talk about that. Where does that come from? How do we live in that? How do we walk with God's spirit and pursue less of ourselves? There's a great verse in, in Galatians chapter 5 that I love that talks about this. And this is uh, the same chapter where the Apostle Paul talks about the idea of producing the fruit of the spirit that I mentioned earlier. So Galatians 5 verse 16 and 17 says, So I say, walk by the spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. So, so he's talking about there's this war inside of us. There's this war. There's this, there's this opposition that's going on. And we have a choice. For those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been filled with God's spirit. There's nothing you can do to make that happen. There's nothing you can do to take that away. If you know Jesus, you have his, the Spirit of Christ dwelling with it, within you. You are sealed until the day in which Christ comes. And, and you, you are his. 
And so the Holy Spirit lives within you, but you have every power to ignore him. And he's a person. And you have every power to ignore him, and you have every power to just go, you know what, I, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to do my own thing today. And we live day in and day out kind of pursuing our own agendas, pursuing our own ideas. And, and it's so easy, guys. I'm talking about myself here. It's so easy to walk through a day and go, did I, did I acknowledge God? Did, was I walking with him today? So if you feel that way, you're not alone. But God has something more for us. And the concept is really super easy to understand. If I connect with God in my daily relationship, which he's designed for me, which he wants for me, that's what it means to walk. When we use this word, walk by the Spirit, it means to walk in this relationship. When you, you, you know, when you go on a walk, you, oftentimes you go on a walk with someone else, right? Sometimes we walk alone, but like as a married man, I go on walks with my wife. I walk and we talk. It's relational. Some of the most relational moments we have are when we walk together and we talk for, for an hour or so. God wants us to walk and connect with him. And it's super easy to understand, but it's very, very hard to do. And why is it so hard? Well, the reason why it's so hard is because we don't like to lose control. We love control. So when I, when I was a kid, I grew up, my parents were missionaries in Africa, in Cameroon, and uh, it's in West Africa, tons of monkeys there, and one of, one of the uh, friends that we had described to us how they would catch a monkey, okay? And it's not some elaborate trap, you know, of, of a net system in the jungle. It's actually super easy to catch a monkey. And so what happens is, is they take a coconut and they, they hollow it out and then they put a hole in the top of the coconut and, um, and then they tie that coconut to something that's sturdy. And then in the coconut, they take a piece of fruit, like a little piece of banana. And when they, they put that banana in there, the monkey will sniff it out and they'll come and that monkey will put his, his paw in there and he'll grab a hold of the banana, okay? And the monkey's done for. And the reason why the monkey's done for is the monkey will never let go. The monkey has every choice to let go of the fruit and he can slide his hand right back out. But he won't because whatever he, whatever he grabs, he believes he must have and he wants to stay in control and he can't let go. Does that sound familiar? We live this way in our lives with so many things. We live tight-fisted. We live in a way where we feel like we have to control things around us, and we don't, we don't like surrender. We hold on to things that are even harmful to us. And the flesh desperately wants to hold on to things that destroy us. Our pride, insecurities, ego, our status, our value, our money, our obsession, our career, our lusts. But God wants to wake us up to the reality that surrendering to him by opening up our hands and surrendering, that that's the only way we can experience the life, the peace, and the rest that he promises. 
There's another passage in the book of Romans that talks about this idea of surrender, and it does it incredibly well. These two verses are probably two of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Um, and, it's, and it's not because I'm awesome at living this, okay? But it's always a great reminder of how God wants me to surrender. And we need to be reminded of this because we are broken and we do mess up. And we need to remember what it looks like to surrender. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You see, what the Apostle Paul is referencing here is the Old Testament system of sacrifice. Uh, For ancient Jewish people, worship wasn't just the first three songs at the beginning of a service. Sure, they, they did worship through song. We have the book of Psalms, which is a whole book of worship songs. But primarily, the way in which worship was expressed in the Old Testament was through what happened in the temple. They would go to the temple to worship. And the temple was designed for one thing. It was designed for people to come and bring an animal sacrifice. And this was a reminder that that something has to pay for sin. Something has to die. There has to be an atonement for sin. And what Paul is reminding the Roman people here of is that God has chosen to extend his grace and his mercy. That's why he says, in view, with, with, with being able to see God's mercy and grace. In view of God's mercy and grace. He's reminding us that God has extended his mercy to the entire world by sacrificing Jesus on the cross once and all, once for all, for the sins of humanity. He's done it. He's taken care of it. The sacrifice has been paid and God is satisfied. So, Paul is, Paul is saying, because that is true, there's a new kind of worship. The way I want you to respond to me, the way I want you to respond to me is this. I want you to be a living sacrifice. This is a sacrifice that leads to life, not death. See, God wants us to humbly come and choose on a daily basis to surrender to him, to let him lead, to let him be Lord. And as we surrender to him daily, he gives us freedom from that thing called the flesh that wants to destroy. Now let's look at Romans 12 too, because he carries on the same idea. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul reconfirms that, that transformation, in other words, change, the change that we want in our lives, begins with our minds, how we think what we think about, what we entertain, how we think about God, how we think about others, how we think about ourselves. 
Every bit of transformation comes from what we think. Our minds are a precious thing to God. And so this ought to give us an idea of what we put into our minds, what we let into our minds impacts us. Okay? And what we fill our minds up with, the truth that we fill it up with, transforms us. He talks about the pattern of this world. Well, the pattern of this world is to lie. The world lies to us. It tells us we can find satisfaction in all these different places. And then if we run down that road and we think we're going to find satisfaction in the end, we find ourselves empty. The pattern of this world is to lie to us that our pursuits and our desires, the things that make our flesh get excited, are somehow going to satisfy our souls, and it's a lie. Because we've done it. There's not a person in this room hasn't, hasn't pursued something and then found themselves empty and dissatisfied. But God wants us to believe the truth. He wants us to know how much he loves us. He wants us to know how much he's done for us. And that when we believe the truth, we experience a life that he's meant for us, a life of peace and joy. And when our thoughts are changed by believing what is true, we get victory over the lies. I, haven't, I have hardly ever had a counseling situation that I've been in as a pastor where this wasn't a main theme, that someone was holding on to some sort of lie in their life and God wanted to set them free with truth. God intends us to live in freedom and to experience all that he wants for us. And so this is where I want to talk about living from Jesus again. The idea that we can live from all that's already been done, from the truth that God says about him, about us, and what he's done. There are three things in the gospel that are absolutely true, and they're true for us every single day. And if you're taking notes, I'd write these down. Because these are so important. These are things that that you need to be reminded of every single day, that I need to be reminded of every single day. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is true. You don't have to do anything. You just have to believe it and walk in it. First one, God sees us differently. Because of Jesus, God sees me differently. He sees Jesus instead of me. He doesn't see my sin. Instead, he sees Jesus' perfection. God doesn't look at you and go, look, I I know you did this wrong and this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he took it all away. And when God looks at you, he goes, you are forgiven and I see nothing wrong. That's how God views you. That's what the New Testament teaches us. That he sees Christ's perfection in our place. It says... (laughs) all over the New Testament, that we are saints, that we are holy, that we are clean, and that he doesn't see us in our guilt and our shame. And this is is the one that's super hard to grasp. Even when you're living in the flesh, and, and even in the moment 
of you screwing up and doing something wrong. You let, you let your anger get the best of you. You were in a relationship that caused bitterness and you're, you can't seem to let it go. Even in those moments, God looks at you and he sees Jesus, not your sin. And he wants you to be reminded of that. He wants me to live in that truth every day. Here's the second thing. God has made us different. 2 Corinthians 5 says that you and I are new creations. That God, because of Jesus, God made us new. And that, that the old way, the old part of me is gone. And that I get to live in the newness that Jesus has made for me. I've been made right and worthy by Jesus. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're worthy. You don't have to do anything to make that true. He sees you righteous and worthy. The old nature of sin is gone. And that means that when you are walking with Jesus and you're living from his power, you're doing the most natural thing you could possibly do. And to live in the flesh and act, act like that feels like the most natural thing, it feels natural, but it isn't because you're new. And you need to walk in the truth of being new in Jesus. Third thing the gospel tells us and teaches us is that God relates to us differently. In the book of Ephesians, it says, before... Before we knew Jesus, God, God looked at us, and in his eyes, we were enemies. We were enemies before God, but because of Jesus, that we are adopted as children. And what this means for us is that when God relates to me, he relates to me as a dad. He relates to me as a father. One of my favorite parables that Jesus tells in his ministry is the parable of the prodigal son. And I love it at the very end when the son realizes that he's been living in the flesh, he's been squandering everything, he's been making foolish, destructive decisions. He runs home. He runs home, and what does the father do? Does the father stand there and look far off and go, about time you came home? No. The father runs out, arms open wide, and he greets his son and he hugs him, and he gives him a kiss, and he says, my son has finally returned home. That's the way the father looks at you. He sees you as his child. And it doesn't matter how many times you've screwed up. He looks at you the same. And he says, welcome home. My son took your place. You're forgiven. I love you. And nothing can change that ever. This is what it means to live from Jesus. Sometimes we get caught up in living for Jesus. We get caught up in trying to do it through our own strength. And there's nothing wrong with smiling and knowing that you're living for Jesus. But what I'm trying to say, it's more important to live from Jesus. Because he did it all. He paid it all. He says all of these things are true about you and me. And we can live from that truth. Maybe we should make it just a, a prayer. Not a resolution. Not a goal. 
Some of you are already sick of goals. Some of you have already failed, like me. I started a new eating plan. I failed this morning. (laughs) Some of you aren't shocked, which is really frustrating. You're judging me. (laughs) But here's the thing. Maybe we start where it all needs to start. Maybe in 2020, it's like, ah, I want to walk with Jesus. I want, to, I want to walk in his spirit because there's nothing wrong with me eating better. There's nothing wrong with me working out. But that's not the foundation of who I am. Being healthy is great. But in 2020, I want to live more from Jesus, and I want to make life less about me.